Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, whether you talk about politics these days, whether you're talking about the geopolitical situation with Russia, whether you talk about affairs in the Middle East, whether you talk about the economy, whether you talk about the future of the environment, it seems like everything comes down to a discussion about energy, energy prices, the future of energy, how all of the other factors that I'm that I just mentioned are affecting energy prices and how energy prices are affecting everything else. Some numbers came out yesterday that show inflation might be the highest it's been since August of 1982 and believe it or not, those are numbers that may not even include the energy costs. Well, an article after article and analysis after analysis when asked to explain why inflation is so out of control, why it might be up 6.6%, expert after expert all says the same thing. It's due to oil prices. It's due to gas prices. Now, if gas prices aren't included in the CPR, how is it that uh, gas prices are driving inflation? Those are a few of the questions we have For Dr. Ellen Wald, she is a historian and a scholar of the energy industry and Western involvement in the Middle East. She's also the author of a terrific book called Saudi Inc., The Arabian Pursuit of Profit and Power. Kind enough to join me this morning. Ellen, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks for having me. So I know oil prices have dipped a little bit, and I want to ask you about that, but What has been driving the recent uptick in gas prices? Uh, I know the conventional wisdom has that it's uh, the supply chain issues, that it's an increase in demand, and that it's the uh, tensions with Russia. Do you deviate at all from that conventional wisdom? Well, I think it's important to understand that when you are looking at gasoline prices, the vast majority of gasoline prices is the price of oil. So when the price of oil goes up, gasoline prices are going to go up as well. Uh, There are other components. So, for example, um, all of the gasoline in the United States contains some amount of ethanol, which is uh, in the United States made largely from corn. So if corn prices go up, then the price of ethanol can go up, and that can also cause gasoline prices to rise. However, really the bulk of it is the price of crude oil. And we have seen a fairly precipitous rise in the price of crude oil recently, mostly owing to the tensions and the the violence in the military uh, um, going on between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Now, we were seeing oil prices rising before that due to some of the factors that you mentioned, supply chain issues, inflation, demand was growing, but supply wasn't really growing to meet that demand. Although the truth is that we do have enough oil in the world today. We're not concerned about shortages of oil. Uh, We don't have to worry about gasoline rationing or gasoline lines. We're really just talking mostly about 
rising demand, uh, which is which was met by supply, but largely these price increases are due to speculation about what's going to happen with Russia and Ukraine, because Russia is one of the world's largest oil producers. And so when there is any kind of military engagement with a big oil producer, the price of oil will be affected because people looking at the market start to get worried that they might not be able to export as much oil, for example. And so a lot of this rise is due to geopolitical tensions. And that's another reason why we're seeing such fluctuations. Oil was up well over $100 a barrel. Oh, now it's down under $100 a barrel. And then two days later, it's up again. And a lot of that has to do with uncertainty over whether the EU is going to implement sanctions against Russia. Uh, Are they going to sanction Russian oil? Are they not going to sanction Russian oil? What's going on in the conflict? Do we think it might be resolved? Um, Is there a potential for other oil producers to produce more? All of these are really affecting the price of oil in a much more significant way, and that's why we're feeling it at the pump as it happens. And one of the moves that the Biden administration has made to give consumers and motorists a little bit of a break is to release some of the oil from the strategic petroleum reserve. Now, whenever any president does this, this always seemed or talks about doing it. This seems like a controversial move. Uh, Some people were saying that it wouldn't have much of an impact on prices. Other people were saying this is not the right time to do this. What was your take? Uh, in terms of the the impact on consumers and the broader decision to tap into the strategic petroleum reserve, was this the right move? Was this the wrong move? What do you think? Well, I think it's a very controversial move because the the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, was created as uh, a way to alleviate shortages. Uh, of oil, particularly uh, in the event that the United States was not able to import oil. It was actually created at the time when the U.S. was a major, major oil importer. We're still an important oil importer, but our domestic uh, industry has really taken off uh, in, in recent years, and so uh, we're, not, we're not importing quite as much as we used to. But the idea was if, say, uh, some nation was forced to stop in exporting oil or um, decided they didn't want to sell to the U.S. anymore, that we would be able to uh, cover that shortage with oil in our strategic petroleum reserve. What we're looking at now is a very different situation because there is no shortage of oil, particularly for for those uh, consumers in the U.S. It's just that the prices are higher than consumers would like to pay, and they're higher than the Biden administration Mm -hmm. wants because it it reflects very badly on the administration. For some reason, no matter what uh, the actual reason for high gas prices are, Americans always blame the president and the administration in the White House for high gas prices, even if it's not their fault. So the Biden administration is trying to use the SPR to push prices down. And that was never the purpose of the SPR. And it's not really guaranteed that this move will actually work to bring down prices because we're not in an era of of a supply shortage. So they want to release basically 180 million barrels of crude oil over the next six months. That amount is completely unprecedented Mm. in the history of our SPR. And uh, there's really no way to know how oil prices will be 
uh, affected because they're not just releasing oil, they're selling the oil to refiners, and the refiners have to buy that oil. Refiners may not want to buy all that oil, or they may think that the the prices the government's offering aren't good enough for them. Mm. Uh, And so it's entirely possible that this move is not really going to affect oil prices to the extent that the administration is hoping for. Has it had, because you indicated that some of the price is due to speculators, has the decision to tap into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve had any downward effect on prices already among speculators? Has that has it driven the oil price down? I saw yesterday that oil, uh, the barrel of oil uh, dipped below $100 a barrel for the first time in a while. Is that a good sign for consumers anyway? Yeah, exactly. That's a really great question because that seems to be exactly the extent of the move. So back in um, in November and December, the Biden administration was also concerned about rising prices and did um, release oil from the SPR. And that's exactly what happened. We saw a dip in oil prices at the time of the announcement mm. of the release. And that lasted a little bit, and then it just continued on its upward trend. So that that's an, a that's a very likely scenario here. Is that what we're seeing now is the um, the dip caused by the announcement of it? But then once that fades from consciousness, essentially, uh, we could see you know something else impacting oil prices to cause it to go up. So, for example, another thing that's pushing oil prices down a bit is concern over the lockdown that are going on in China and that this might affect Chinese demand. But say those lockdowns are ended in a week or two, we could see the price of oil shoot back up and, you know, there's no new announcement to to bring that down. So what you're saying is essentially this strategic petroleum reserve move could be unwise in that it takes away at a time when there's no oil shortage, it takes away a, a very important uh, safeguard in the event that there does get, become oil shortages one day, and its impact on pricing could be minimal. Exactly, and that's a real fear. Here is mm. the um, is is that if we do go through with this release, now remember. The, the oil has to be purchased by someone. So it's entirely possible that, you know, refiners may buy a bunch of oil now and refine it into gasoline and say, okay, we're, we're ready for the summer driving season. We don't, we're, we're not going to need any more. And they just stop buying it. Uh, and that's happened before. In fact, during, um, in 1991, during the Gulf War, the, um, the, the oil companies and, and the refineries didn't even buy all the oil that was being offered from the SPR because they didn't feel it was needed. Um, and wow. so if if they do uh, go through and buy all of this oil, then there will be a concern. When are we going to replenish this? Apparently, mm. the plan is that when oil gets below $80 a barrel, that um, the government will start to replenish it. But who knows when that may be? And so we could be leaving ourselves in a situation where uh, our, our strategic reserves are perilously low. Mm. And if there is an incident, for example, say there's a hurricane. Say there's a huge hurricane, uh, you know, in um, in August or September that takes out a lot of our own oil production, say from the Gulf of Mexico. And this this happened last year, and we need to release oil from our SPR to compensate for that, but we don't have it because we sold it all earlier.
Uh, talking with Dr. Ellen Wald, she's the author of the book Saudi Inc., The Arabian Pursuit of Profit and Power. One of the things that we've heard a little bit, and it's difficult to know through the prism of rumors and anonymous sources how much is true and how much is fact, is that the Biden administration is working to get domestic energy producers, who Joe Biden hasn't had the best relationship with historically, uh, to produce more. He's also trying to get OPEC. Uh, to produce more. Uh, what do we know about both of those efforts and what's the response been from both OPEC and domestic energy producers? Yeah, that's that's a really good point. So from OPEC, the response has basically been, we're really not interested in in, in fulfilling your request. Is, is that um, because they benefit from higher gas price or higher oil prices or is there some other reason? Well, they definitely do benefit from the higher oil prices. However, um, the, the truth is that oil prices were plenty high, so they're they're benefiting, you know, no matter what. They don't necessarily need oil to be at one hundred and twenty dollars a barrel to benefit any more than when it was at eighty or ninety. In fact, a lot of producers would actually prefer oil to be, say, in the seventy to eighty dollar a barrel range because then um, they're not concerned about demand, what we call demand destruction, where mm. the price of oil is just too high, and so. Um, People are not buying as much oil. They're either conserving or countries that might be buying more oil or just, just not buying as much. So so that is a concern that OPEC has. Is if it gets too high, uh, that could be, be bad for them. But really, what, what from OPEC's perspective, they see this as um, – they don't see the problem as a matter of supply and demand. They're looking at it and they're saying, actually, the oil market is really well supplied. The reason that prices are so high is because of this geopolitical situation with Russia and Ukraine and speculation over it, and that's not something we can do anything about. This is mm. their perspective. They they say, you know, producing more oil, won't. They, they don't believe that that would really effectively lower the price because – it's not a supply issue. There's no lack of supply. The issue is is Russia. Then there's the other issue that they face, which is that Russia is now part of this larger OPEC plus group. And so if they were to say, if, say, Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Iraq were to say, hey, we're just going to forget about our commitments that we have with this larger group and our quotas that we have with them and produce more because the EU and the U.S. have asked us to, well, then Russia is going to look at that and say, what are we doing in this group anyway? We're out of here. And once they leave, OPEC plus as a whole loses a large part of its ability, as they see it, to influence the market because Russia is a big, important producer. Since you've mentioned Russia a few times in in the conversation about American gas prices and worldwide oil prices, it was a somewhat controversial decision by the president to decide to prohibit the imports of Russian oil. Some other countries, even countries in Europe that are more dependent on Russian oil, are either talking about doing that same thing or already moving in that direction. India and China, they're happy to take any Russian oil that Americans aren't buying. What has the impact on American gas prices been of the decision to prohibit the import of Russian oil? Yeah, so um, the, the big issue there in the United States is, is what I see it as a, a largely symbolic move 
because the U.S. is not a big importer of Russian energy products as a whole. So it's very easy to say we're, we're banning this because not that many, you know, not that much Russian oil or, or, or gas is really part of the American market. In fact, um, we really hadn't imported much of any Russian oil uh, until uh, there was this, this hurricane uh, last year that took out some production in the Gulf. And so uh, some refineries started to import Russian um, oil as a way to make up for the loss of that. So um, it's, I, I think it really doesn't have a big impact on the United States and was largely a symbolic move. Europe, on the other hand, is is a different question because they, and especially Germany, are highly dependent on Russian energy products, um, oil, natural gas, and even coal. And so the big question is really, will they be able to, can can they separate themselves from Russian energy and maintain not just their economic development, but you know their basic way of life. Uh, you know, are they are, is, is Europe willing to endure power outages, extreme gasoline rationing, for example, in in order to sanction Russian oil? And my sense is that while they keep talking about it, the fact that they haven't gone forward with it is that they, they don't believe that their populations are ready to accept mm. these kinds of very severe measures to to take a stand against Russia. I mean, this is this, it's not like this is England during the Blitz or during World War II when people were asked to make great personal sacrifices of their own, you know, goods and, and their own lives in order to support the war effort. I don't think that this particular war really garners the same uh, effect for Europeans. I, I mentioned that the Russians are still selling to countries like India and China. Is the fact that that the Europeans, or at least some Europeans and the Americans are no longer buying that Russian oil does that mean cheaper oil prices for India and China or things staying about the same there? Exactly. And that's a really good point and is a large part of, I think, why the U.S. is now trying to pressure at least India not to buy this Russian oil, but they're they're not very successful at it. So India and, and China can basically what, – what they're doing is they're looking at – the the situation and they're saying hey we'll buy this russian oil no if nobody else is buying it but you know we want a discount and they're actually finding some pretty good discounts uh, there are reports of discounts as much as $35 off of the Brent benchmark and if oil is $120 a barrel a $35 discount is is a really good deal for these countries and India especially is at a point where its population is growing and its oil use is really growing and India has no domestic oil production they've got to import everything and they used to import a lot from Iran they stopped importing from Iran because of the the sanctions there if you want to eliminate Russia from that too where are they going to get Mm. their oil from and they're not willing to pay exorbitant prices for it that's not something that their economy uh, which is really in a much more developmental stage than say European or American economies can handle so from their perspective, they see a good deal, 
and um, this would be very beneficial for them. The same thing goes for China, though China has had a very long-standing relationship with Russia and importing Russian oil. There's actually a direct pipeline um, between Russia and China. So um, it, China was never really in a position where it was going to stop. Um, they're likely to import more oil at good prices. Oil, because of our uh, disputes with Maduro and Hugo Chavez, uh, there was some speculation that we were going to turn to Venezuela in an effort to make up any shortfall that existed with the decrease of Russian energy supply. Keeping in mind what you said, that Russian oil was already a, a fairly small part of the American energy market, what are you hearing about the prospects of buying Venezuelan oil to kind of meet that uh, stopgap? Yeah, exactly. Um, it did seem like this was something the Biden administration was really interested in. They sent a delegation to Venezuela to talk with um, to talk with Maduro about this, and even um, Maduro seemed to be very excited about the possibility. Um, and some of the um, and a lot of people thought that Maduro's uh, releasing of some. Uh, Chevron officials, uh, excuse me, not Chevron, uh, Citgo officials that they had kind of been been holding hostage, uh, American um, Citgo officials, was a sign that the sanctions would um, would soon be ended. Uh, that hasn't happened. Part of the issue with Venezuela is that uh, its oil industry is really uh, in, in the pits. It, it has mm. suffered tremendously, and not just because of U.S. sanctions. It was suffering long before that because of terrible mismanagement, a lack of money. Uh, and so the, the oil production in, in Venezuela was at about 2 million barrels a day, and, and they were, were able to export um, you know, a, a decent amount. But it really tumbled because they didn't have any money for parts. Um, they weren't able to you know, keep paying the oil workers, and a lot of things fell into disrepair. And the thing about Venezuelan oil at this point is it's not an easy or cheap oil to extract. It's a very thick kind of mm. like the tar sands type oil. And so in order to get it out of the ground and to get to transport it, they have to um, combine it with uh, other substances that basically make it able to flow through pipelines. Uh, they, they use things called upgraders to do it, and those upgraders are completely in disrepair. So the Venezuelan oil industry needs a lot of investment in order to get back to where it was. So even if the U.S. was to end sanctions on Venezuela and start buying its oil again, it's not the panacea that that people were, were thinking it might be simply because their oil industry just can't produce that much more. I know you've been very generous with your time and you have a three-week-old whose attention we're competing with for you. A couple other quick questions, though, because it's so rare that I get to tap into someone with your expertise. We've seen, we, know, we remember those of us that are in the New York area that lived through the lockdowns of two years ago, what that did to oil prices because all of a sudden nobody was driving to work. Now, we're seeing in Shanghai and China uh, broad COVID-related lockdowns there. Some other countries are talking about bringing down, uh, bringing back lockdowns. I'm wondering what, impri what impact will that have on American gas prices? Is there an opportunity to enjoy the lower prices because Chinese workers are not driving? Well, there is because oil is a 
staple commodity. And so while, you know, in America, our gas prices generally are based on the price of WTI, which is the American benchmark, that is also still traded globally. And ever since the U.S. became uh, started to export oil again, that, that started um, right at the end of the Obama administration was when uh, we started being able to export our oil. That really made WTI more of a, a, global, um, a global benchmark. And so, um, yes, essentially, if there are lockdowns in China and that causes the price of oil uh, to go down globally, that will definitely provide some respite for Americans and uh, American gasoline prices, not as much as if we had, say, global lockdowns uh, or lockdowns in the United States, not that I'm promoting that as a way sure. to bring down gas prices, but it will definitely have an effect if it does affect global oil prices. Uh, you wrote the book, Saudi Inc. Every president, I think since Nixon, has promised to make uh, America less dependent on foreign oil. Now, at times in our history, it seems like we've gotten pretty close. The fracking and domestic energy production that took place, particularly under Presidents Obama and Trump, it would seem that we were a lot less dependent on Saudi oil, but it seemed like whoever the president is, Democrat, Republican, old, young, no matter the ethnicity, no matter the pedigree, no matter the style, they're all so eager to have a good relationship with Saudi Arabia in spite of what's going on within their own country in terms of violations of human rights, in spite of some very serious, in my view, credible uh, accusations about things like uh, sponsoring terrorism or being very close to terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Why have the Saudis been able to maintain uh, such incredible influence over American policymakers. Is it due just to the fact that they're such an oil-rich country, or is there more to it? I think um, a large part of it does have to do not just with the fact that they're an oil-rich country, but the fact that really the Saudis alone of any other oil producer in the world today have the ability to ramp up production or shut down production, um, not at a moment's notice, but in a, in a way that's very, uh, that, that can happen very quickly. They have more what we call spare capacity than anyone else because they can produce, and we've seen them actually, produce 12 million barrels of oil per day, which is way more than anybody else in the world is capable of producing. And yet, they don't. So right now they're they're below that. They're they're far below that. In fact, that number. And so simply because they have that ability to ramp up oil production as they desire, gives them much more leverage over the oil market than any other country. So even if the United States say right now in the U.S. we're producing in the 11 million barrel range, but we do know that we have produced upwards of 13 million barrels a day. The problem is that our oil industry is not centralized in a way that one person can can give the order mm -hmm. to increase production like they can in Saudi Arabia. And uh, and so I would say that, that that definitely gives them a lot of influence uh, over um, a lot of policy considerations that they might not have if they didn't have that capacity. You wrote an article for The Hill in which you went through a few of the ways that Biden could reduce spiking consumer costs in spite of what we've talked about here, 
uh, tapping into the strategic petroleum reserve, asking the Saudis to produce more, asking domestic energy producers to drill more. What could the Biden administration actually do to help ease the burden at the pump? Yeah, I think one of the important things that they really could do is not just ask U.S. domestic producers to produce more, but really reach out in cooperation with them and gain a better understanding of what's keeping American production at these kind of in this, you know, 11 million barrels kind of we're like stuck in this this stasis part and say okay what is actually needed to get production moving and what is it that the federal government can do to assist that and i do think that there is there is a fair amount that the federal government could do to make oil producers feel like they can shell out that that money those capital expenses to produce more um, because they will be supported in this decision. This is something that producers are not willing to do for a variety of reasons, but one of those is that they really have very little confidence that the government isn't just going to institute some new regulation that will you know, basically make it very expensive or almost impossible for them to keep producing. And if they had some kind of assurance from the government about the, the regulations, uh, they might feel more confident in, uh, you know, in, in spending money to expand production. And I think there, there is a lot that the mm. government could do to make American producers feel like, uh, to, to feel confidence and to not feel so much uncertainty uh, and, and to really produce more. Well, uh, let's hope so. Fingers crossed. By the way, do you think if people are tired of paying 60 70 $75 to fill up their gas tank, uh, what is your forecast for where the future of American energy prices are going? Should people think, uh, just forgetting about the environmental impact, and I'm not diminishing it, but putting aside the environmental impact, just from a dollars and cents perspective, should people look to make the transition to things like electric cars or hybrids if their only concern is dollars and cents? Yeah, that's, that's a really good um, good question. And the issue, I think, really comes down to um, each individual family's calculus over what, what makes sense for them. Because electric vehicles and especially hybrid vehicles, I do think, are probably one of the best ways you can um, maintain the kind of certainty that you want out of a vehicle but also um, pay less at the pump. The problem is these cars are very expensive still, and a a lot of people just can't afford to buy them. Uh, With electric vehicles, they're also still quite expensive. And with an electric vehicle, you suffer other issues like range and and range anxiety. Um, The fact is that uh, for a lot of people, an electric vehicle does not make sense because it just does not have the same range as an internal combustion vehicle. And instead of going to the pump where in five or ten minutes you can, yes, spend $60, but you can fill up your tank with gasoline and continue on, if you have an electric vehicle, you've got to sit for 30, 40 Mm. plus minutes to recharge it. Uh, So even if it doesn't cost that much, you're paying in time. Plus, if you're charging your electric vehicle at your home, in your home outlet, you are going to be paying for that electricity. And electricity prices in the United States, uh, if you haven't looked at your utility bill recently, you should, are going up and there's no indication that they're going to come down. So even if it's not paying the same amount, you're still paying 
to charge that car. And so these are these are decisions that families will have to really look hard at. You can't assume that an EV or a hybrid will absolutely save you money um, if it's not going to perform uh, the, the things you need it to perform. Say you need to drive 200 miles a day, you know, that may not be the right vehicle for you. Ellen, I learned so much from reading you, uh, hearing you on radio, uh, seeing you on television. To be able to uh, ask my questions to you directly is a a real treat. Thank you so much for the time this morning. Good luck with the baby. I hope we can do this again soon. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Ellen Wald. Uh, She's the author of the book, Saudi Inc., The Arabian Pursuit of Profit and Power.